obedience towards the Father. Not only the uniqueness of Jesus' obedience towards the Father, but we actually get this very real picture of the Trinity being in communion with one another. We see the, the three persons of God. Three persons yet. One being. A mystery that even the smartest theologians can't comprehend. So I won't try to dig into it too much. But we get to see this obedience of the Son Jesus and a pleased Father. So starting in verse 21, it says this. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Do you know what makes Christianity so radically different? from all other religions. It's this this view on works. Where do works play when it comes to Christian doctrine? You see, we are naturally hardwired to believe that our works play a significant role in the salvation of ourselves. That's why we, we see passages and we see Jesus draw out the heart when the rich young ruler approaches him and says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And the first thing the rich young ruler goes to is his works. See, there are some sermons that I've, I've preached in my life that I enjoy so much. And then there are other sermons like today that I'm going to be preaching that I've preached to myself thousands of times while being a Christian. This is a sermon that comes from the deepest depths of my heart because this was me and still can be me. Believing that my works, my obedience to the Father is what saved me. And I'm still tricked to this day sometimes that my works is what finds favor. That's what pleases God, is what I do. I sat down and had coffee with a a high school friend a few months ago. And as I was talking with my, my high school friend, we started talking about religion. And he told me, Max, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian, but maybe the Christian God is, is the real God. What I believe in is contributing to this society. That's a noble thing, I said. And then he went on to say, and, and so, if I meet the God of the Bible... 
I am completely okay with laying out the list of things that I've done for the society of this world, to leave it a a better place. Tell him that I'm a a good person, striving to be a good father and a good husband. And you know what, Max? If, if, he, if he kicks me out and he sends me to hell, then that's, that's his problem. See, it is both in the life of the Christian and the non-Christian that we believe that our works contribute somehow to our salvation. But you know what? We can't. Scripture is fundamentally clear that our works don't and can't save us. In fact, the Apostle Paul draws that out and says that no one is righteous, no, not one. He even says that our good works are like filthy rags. Oh, but do you know what Luke is pointing out in this passage today? What we see Christ doing is that Christ's obedience will ultimately lead to our righteousness. And so we come to this first verse. We come to verse 21 and we read, now all the people were baptized. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Christ's obedience is a unique type of obedience. But you know what's interesting about Christ's baptism? I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Why is it that Jesus had to be baptized? Do you know what type of uh, baptism John was doing? It was a baptism of repentance. Now, if we're following this logic... And Jesus is the sinless Son of God. Why did Jesus need to be baptized with a baptism of repentance? It's an interesting thing to think about. That the perfect Son of God needed to be baptized with a baptism of repentance? Does that mean Jesus had something to repent of? Well, you see in in Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, it's actually one of the shortest. We only get two verses here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly go over to Matthew 3, verse 15. See, Matthew, he lets us in on what Jesus said. You see, when Jesus goes up to John... Jesus says, you must baptize me. And John is very adamant. No, Jesus, I'm I'm not supposed to baptize you. You are, are to baptize me. But what we see Jesus say to John is this. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's not that Jesus had something to repent of. It's that this was the mission of Jesus. To fulfill all righteousness. 
And so Jesus must be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. So we see the obedience of this son. Why is it that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness? Well, we see in Luke or Matthew 5, verse 17. We see what that looks like. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill all the law. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And so, in order to fulfill all righteousness, he must be baptized by John. Jesus, being the sinless Son of God, must live and walk a life perfectly according to every aspect of the law. This is so crucial. Because we can't do that. Oh, how weary does my soul get every time I believe that it is up to me to fulfill all righteousness. And when the mirror of the Ten Commandments are in my face, I am let down again and again. But reading that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness makes my soul leap This is good news for us. You see, this was an extraordinary baptism, not only because Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness, but because of what happens next. As Jesus is being baptized, as John is dunking Jesus under the water, Jesus is praying. He's having communion with God and he's lifted above the water and wipes away the wetness from his eyes and looks up and he sees the heavens open. Oh, what a sight that must have been for Jesus who had lived in heaven for an eternity's past to look up and see where his home is, open up from where his creatures lived. And we know through what scripture teaches us is that when the heavens open, usually a vision occurs or God speaks to a prophet. And this is important to us because of what comes next. We see both a vision and God speaking. But before I move on, I just, I just want to make one quick application here. See, the gospel can sometimes be viewed as this. I wouldn't say sometimes. I would say most of the time. And, and culturally speaking, in Christianity today, the gospel is normally looked at like this. It's, it's like God is asking you for 20 bucks. You, you take out your wallet or purse. You, you look in there and you notice 
Ah, shoot, I only have 15. So what do we do? We, we look to Jesus and we, we say, hey, hey, Jesus, you got a five spot? I'll, I'll pay you back sometimes. I just need a five spot to pay back God's 20 bucks. He's asking me for 20. I've got 15. I just need five. Yeah, you, you can do that. Okay, awesome. Here you go. But what the Bible tells us is that we have no money. We've got zero. And, and in fact, our debt isn't $20. It's a million dollars. For me, probably two million. And we can't pay it back. And do you know what's even worse than that? So we're spiritually dead, so we can't even work for the money to pay him back. We have a serious debt looming over our heads. If you don't know what happens when you don't pay back your debt, people come knocking at your door and they come and get your stuff and they take you away and they lock you up. And so it is with us. We can't pay back our debt. So God is coming back. He will take us away if our debt has not been paid. And we will face the righteous judgment and wrath of him for not paying back our debt. See, but this is the good news. So we can't pay back our debt. And it is exhausting while we live a life like my works can pay back that debt. Oh, but it's the sweet promise in 2 Corinthians that we can turn to. This sweet promise that says this and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Apostle Paul tells us this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what Jesus does is Jesus, he came to live a life to fulfill all righteousness, die a death that we deserve, take the judgment of God for those who believe in him, repent of their sins so that we could have his righteousness and he would take our sins and throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. That is the good news that is freely offered to all. Do you believe this? Tomorrow is not promised. And so if we continue reading, we get an even sweeter picture of grace. As verse 22 says this, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. 
So we come to this verse and we actually get to see a Trinitarian party. We get to see the three persons of God conversing with one another. We see the Son being baptized. We see the Spirit descending. And we see the Father speaking. So before moving on, I just, I just want to briefly speak into this. Because there are some very common false views of the Trinity that, that I feel like it would be a disservice if, we, if, I, if I didn't talk about. See, a lot of people believe that there are three modes of God. See, God existed as only Father. And when Jesus came, there was no God the Father. Nah, and then there was just God the Son. Then when Jesus left, now there's only God the Son, so there are three modes. This heresy is called modalism. But what we see right here is that all three are very present, very active, and very real. And then there is a, another thought. That Jesus didn't become God until the Spirit descended on him. But we see in, in Philippians 2, one of the most amazing things that Paul says. He says this in Philippians 2, 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so it's not that Jesus wasn't God until the Spirit descended on him. No, no, no. It was that Jesus was God and the Spirit descended on him. And how can I explain this? Well, I'll defer to Paul who says he, it's something that we just can't grasp. It's a mystery. It's a secret thing. But all I know that this passage teaches right here is that we see the three persons of God. Not three different gods. One eternal being, but three persons. In the last part of this passage, we see maybe one of the best things about this passage. We see a pleased father. See, the last part of this passage says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. We see that the father is pleased with the son's Obedience. This is good news to us. This is good news to us because the Father could never be pleased with our works, but there is one whose works he is pleased in. That's Christ Jesus. He has seen what Christ has done and he says, you are my beloved son. You, Jesus, are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Because Jesus, he came to fulfill all the righteousness 
something you and I cannot do. And so we should be so happy here. We should be so happy here that God the Father looks at His Son, the perfect one, and says, it's you I'm pleased with. Why? Why should we be happy because of this? Well, if I go to my earlier illustration about the one where where Jesus helps us out, you know, that that one where where Jesus, he gives gives the Father the the 20 bucks. See, if if Jesus were to give the Father the, the full 20 bucks, yet I knew that the Father and the Son had some serious beef. You know, the type of beef that, that you're at a family reunion or, or family get-together and the father is sitting on one side of the room and the son's sitting on another side of the room and, and they just kind of tolerate each other. I, if I were at that party, would feel quite awkward. Because I would think... Well, if, if the father and him have beef and, and he paid off my debt to him, well, ah, gosh, how does the father view me then? He doesn't even really like his own son. He's definitely not going to like the one who, who had his debt paid by his son. Gosh, that's just, that's just an awkward situation. But this passage tells us something different. (laughs) This passage says that the Father opened up the heavens like blinds on on a window. He looked at his son and he said, You, Jesus, are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so if it is Jesus' righteousness that is given to us when we repent of our sins, do you know what that means when God looks at us? God looks at us clothed in the Son's righteousness. And upon entering into his kingdom, he will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. While in the background, his son Jesus being there and in his head saying, you are my son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am pleased. Oh, but it is so easy. It is so very easy to look at my works and believe that what I am doing is earning merit or favor with God. It weighs my heart down. It buries me. It brings doubt and shame and confusion into my mind. God, I'm living this life 
Why aren't you finding it pleasing? Goes through my mind. Uh, Aren't I doing enough for you? I'm attending church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm living in fellowship with other believers. I'm evangelizing and sharing the gospel. Isn't that pleasing to you? And he says, no. Those things don't save you. Only the blood of Jesus does. Only the righteousness that is extended to us through what Jesus did on the cross can save us from our sins. And so although those things that we do like attending church and reading our Bible and praying and evangelizing and living in fellowship are good things and things that we must do. We should not rely on those to save us. The Father doesn't look at us and say, I am more pleased with you because of this, this, and this. No, He says, I am pleased with you because I am pleased with my Son. And so maybe you're wrestling with this a little bit. Like I've had to wrestle with this quite a bit. Maybe in your heart you're thinking, but Max, I am told in the Bible that faith without works is dead faith. And amen to that. But neither faith nor works saves us from our sins. Only Jesus' righteousness does. Only what Jesus has done on the cross does. And so I'd like to give just a couple of exhortations for us this morning and then pray. Only Christ can save souls. Our work does not earn favor for us. And our work will leave us tired, beaten up, and dead in the road. And I think of my friend who told me, I'm fine if I tell God I've done this, I've contributed to society in this way, and if he tells me that that's not enough, then, and I go to hell, and that's his problem, I think of that. And my stomach turns into knots because I think of the judgment that's coming his way if he doesn't repent of that. But the good news is, is that grace is free. And grace can be extended to him and to anyone, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how many ways. Oh, if you just look at the scriptures and see how some of the most used people sinned in the most egregious ways. Lest I compare myself to them, I think of all of the ways that I've sinned in egregious ways, in terrible ways. And so this is extended to you this morning. That Jesus will take your sins and give you his righteousness if only you believe in your heart. I would urge you to believe in this. How often do we take our days for granted not knowing if Jesus is going to come back tomorrow or if he's going to take us tomorrow? 
And the second exhortation is this. How do I know when I am trusting in my works over Christ's? And this is something over the years, this is a test that over the years I've done for myself. Because like I said, it's all too common for me to start believing that my works earns me favor with God. And so what I do is, is I test myself. I say, Max, what makes me a Christian? What makes me a child of God? Oh, I, I have to believe that I'm not the only one that falls into the trap of believing that my work saves me. And so I ask, what makes me a child of God? And if the first thing that comes to my mind are either the fruits of the Spirit or the fact that I'm a pastor or that I read my Bible or all of these other things, I know immediately that I'm trusting in myself for God to keep me. And so what I do is remind myself. I take myself to Ephesians chapter 2 and I start reading the great truths that Paul lays out. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Max, you were, you were dead in your sins. You had no life in you at all. You were a corpse, completely separated from God. And not only that, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So not only were you dead, but you were adamantly against the things of God, Max. But God, Max, pay attention to this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Max, God loved you even while you were dead, even while you were walking as an enemy of God. made me, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I remind myself that it's not the things I do. It's not who I am or the work that I do. It's Jesus Christ that saves me. This is why this passage is so extraordinary, brothers and sisters. Is that because Christ came to fulfill all righteousness and he fulfilled all righteousness. And so when I start believing that my works save me and keep me, I strip him of that righteousness. And I say, look at me, God. And so what I do is I remind myself, Max, you were a sinner saved by grace and now you are a saint. 
that is justified in the sight of God. Let us believe that. Let us hold fast to that. Let us look at Christ's baptism as an act of obedience to fulfill all righteousness. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You sent your son Jesus to die for our sins, something that far too often I take and and I make it into something smaller than it actually is. Forgive me of that. Remind me, Father, that, that I was once a sinner dead in my sins, but now I am a son. I am a co-heir. Would you please use this passage to encourage those that have been relying on their works? And, and God, I'm, uh, the Spirit is bringing to my mind right now even to pray for those that are completely blind and oblivious that they have been living a life marked by their works instead of Christ's. And so I ask and I plead that you would use this time to revive our weary weary hearts. That you would use this, this time to show us that your son Jesus, he came to fulfill the all righteousness. He came to pay the debt that we could not pay back. And he has. I pray this in your son Jesus' name who is worthy to be praised, who will have the name above all names and one day every knee bowing to him, confessing that he is King of kings and Lord of Lord. Amen. sin runs deep your grace is more for grace is found is where you are where you are Lord I am free holiness is Christ in me where you Oh God, how I 
Teach me, Lord, to rise with you when salvation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh, God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've just observed the word of God this morning, so let us go and teach the word of God to all of those we come into contact with. Have a great week.